Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Today's episode is about bad habits that women must unlearn with Deepa Narayan. I've been really interested in speaking with Deepa for a number of reasons. First, because she's the author of the book, Chup, Breaking the Silence About India's Women, and she's also the creator and host of a new podcast called What's a Man? Masculinity in India. She's also had a TED Talk called The Seven Bad Habits Women Must Unlearn, which I think all of you should check out. And she shares the results of her research on what it means to be a good girl and a good man. And I really thought it was so profound. Deepa was also the former senior advisor at the World Bank in Washington, D.C., and she's written 17 books and was named one of the 100 most influential global thinkers by Foreign Policy Magazine in the U.S., and as one of India's 35 great thinkers by India Today. So I am so excited to welcome Deepa to the show. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Yasmin. It's a pleasure. So Deepa, can we just drop in and talk a little bit about your research that led to the TED Talk, the seven bad habits that women must unlearn, and also the beliefs used to silence women? I think um, that really moved me when I listened to it. And I just love for you to maybe share some of your research that led to the talk. Sure. It was an accidental research, an accidental book, because I had no intention of doing any more research or writing. But after the Nirbhaya rape in India, which was in 2000, December 2012, I really wanted to address or understand the roots of violence against women, because this is not an Indian phenomenon or American phenomenon, it's a global phenomenon. One in three women get, uh, get assaulted, mostly by intimate partners. But I wanted to see if there's anything new to learn because we've been talking about gender equality and violence against women for so long, and yet the violence persists. So I wanted to really address the cultural issue. And I must say that what I've found and from talking and doing presentations across cultures, including in the US, talking to Iranian women, actually, that uh, the the habits that I talk about are really uh, seem to be universal. So your listeners will have to decide how it applies to them. Culture is a big word, right? So what is it in a culture that we should look at to understand the roots of violence? And I decided that uh, I should look at a very simple question, which is how does a culture define what it is to be a good man, or what is it to be a good woman? And if you ask this question very quickly, it goes below the surface. And so the other thing that I should emphasize is that the book and the research that I'm talking about applies to people who believe in gender equality, who are highly educated, who have middle to higher level incomes and who live in cities. So this is not about poor people. It's about families and women like you and me, who may be highly accomplished. And one of the problems I found is that when you're highly accomplished and intelligent and talented and successful, it's very difficult to see that you may still have problems or issues or behaviors that are not consistent with your values or beliefs about yourself. 
And that's why it's these are these things have been difficult to unearth. The second thing is that when we see these habits, they're not very attractive. And so each woman thinks it's her personal fault. And so she keeps quiet about it because it becomes a source of shame. And I think what I want to really emphasize is because these this is the the way we behave is a result of training. It's deep conditioning. Our parents who love us, train us and bring us up in ways that they consider appropriate. And unless we start talking about these, these habits are not going to go away. So one, it's not your fault. So there's no reason for shame. Two, it's because of training. And three, because it's not your fault and it's a result of training, these habits can be changed. They can be changed individually, but usually it's much more fun and more effective to talk about it and get a group together, whether it's within family or friends, to be able to bring about change. It makes it easier and less lonely. Right. And Deepa, can you talk about... So that was a long response. (laughs) (laughs) Please go ahead. Oh, no, I actually want to hear also, and this is so fascinating, um, because it resonates with me so deeply. I think for a lot of women that grew up in any kind of maybe traditional culture or even in the undertones of a traditional culture. But I'd love to also hear about the seven bad habits that we must unlearn that came out of this research. Um, and I, yeah, and, and several of them, you know, particularly resonated with me. So yeah, I'd love to mm. hear that. Yeah. I two things I must say, uh, Yasmin. One is that these apply equally in the Western world. So this is not a story of developing countries versus the West. It's equally true in the U.S. as well as in the U.K., the two countries I've looked at. And when I've done workshops in the U.S. and the U.K., women say that this applies equally to them. And so then the issue is really how do you change them? So I want to start with the central concept because you can get lost in habits and they seem, uh, yeah. So why have these habits persisted so long and persisted despite education, despite feminism, and despite beliefs in equality? So the key concept that I came, came up with is that we're still training girls not to exist. Mm. We're still training girls not to exist. So the entire cultural system is set up to minimize girls' existence. And what cultures have done is that they have bestowed power in men. And so girls exist to serve men and to minimize the existence so that nothing challenges male power. I'm not saying this to make men feel bad, but this is the current world. And if we accept that, then we can see the force of power against single women. By single, I don't mean marital, but when a woman alone speaks up or does anything that betrays the cultural notions of being a good woman. So that's the challenge we face. So if you don't exist, the first thing that happens is a woman's body or a girl's body, you've got to make it disappear. 
right? And so you do everything you can to minimize a girl's body. The first way, of course, is that there's silence around a girl's body. So in India and even in the U.S., parents really don't educate girls about their bodies. Mm. The second thing that happens is because of the silence, a girls, girls start feeling that there's something wrong. And when there's something wrong, they become uncomfortable. And in addition, girls' bodies become a source of shame. So that's a heavy load to carry. So then we go into denial of our bodies. And the entire, if you can think of, a, you know, how does the culture do it? So in India and in the U.S. too, it's, you don't emphasize your breasts. So many women, you know, we, we hunch our shoulders. You know, the way women dress or the way women are expected to dress. Modesty means different things in different cultures. So all that is to minimize and the way women walk, you know, that most cult, many cultures, traditional cultures, you're not supposed to meet, looks at someone in the eye. So all these things become are become cute or become cultural norms in such a deep way that we don't even question them. So the first aspect in a culture is how do you minimize a woman's body and how do you make it disappear? And all these habits are interlinked, they interlock to delete women. The second one, if you don't have a body, how can you have a voice? How can you make a sound? So think of our old, in our own families, how a girl's made to be quiet directly or indirectly. Like good girls, you're speaking too loudly, you should be quiet. Girls don't interfere in uh, adult discussions, et cetera, et cetera. And so very, slow, very slowly, girls start to lose their voice. The thing that I want to emphasize as we go through these habits is that there's a moral overlay, right? So it's not just how to be a girl, but how to be a good girl. So as women who believe in equality, as or as men who believe in equality, when we speak up, we also have to overcome the notions that we're doing something wrong. So it's a double whammy. So that's really important to remember. The third thing is that, okay, if you don't have a body and you don't have a voice, what's left? What's left is that you turn everything around to please the other. So pleasing is the third habit. And when you please, one of the most pernicious effects is that a pleasing woman, it's easier to be a pleasing woman if you don't have opinions, especially if you don't have strong opinions. So this links back to voice that girls are trained not to have strong opinions, because if you have strong opinions or if you have a strong sense of self, then it's difficult to be constantly pleasing others because you also have a self. So everything is set up to deny or not have a girl's self be fully developed. And if you're constantly pleasing and you have a lot of, uh, if you have, if you don't have opinions, it's very difficult to have a basis to make decisions, right? right. So I give examples in the book, you know, which restaurant to go to, what rest stop to stop at. Simple things become complicated <laughs> because of our habit of automatically wanting to please the other and the other is usually bent. Right, it's because it's men who have the power. So, 
the fourth one, so, you know, you can look at it in the book. It's about uh, denying sexuality. If you deny body, if you deny the whole idea is to deny a self, having girls have an independent self, then you have to deny their sexuality. So girls are not supposed to have desire. And girls' sexuality is just to please, please men. The fifth one is about loyalty to men, but it's actually about not trusting other women. Mm. Yeah, this is a very, very pernicious one, but it's a very important one because the women in traditional families, we used to have extended families, if women united, then men's power system would come down. So we are trained from a very early time not to trust other women. So again, this should not be a source of shame, but wonder that the system has continued because we haven't become aware of this. So when women unite, and this is happening more and more, especially amongst younger women, and you see this a lot on social media, which is very exciting to see, that women come to come together in groups, then they can challenge because the power of numbers. Right. So this uh, trusting other women is really important and to start to talk about it. Um, the sixth one I call talk about, uh, I think, is identity, that uh, women's duty, I call it also duty over desire, that mm. women's duty to serve others, to sacrifice oneself for others. We don't talk about sacrifice uh, the word sacrifice, at least in India, has uh, gone underground amongst educated families, but they're still expected to adjust, which means to meet other people's needs before your own. And uh, the quotation that I remember the most is this 24-year-old man, Saurabh, I say, I talk about, you know, women get so used to sacrificing that by the end of it, they have nothing left to give. And Saurabh calls his mother boring. And that's sad. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, it's a knife. And finally, all these habits interlinked are basically to teach women not to have a self, not to have an independent self, but to be dependent because when you're dependent and when you're alone, it's much easier for to keep women in positions that are disrespectful and uh, low. When you're independent and financial independence is one of the most important ways of breaking dependencies, but it may not be enough, then you can start claiming an independent self. So the challenge really is how do we stop pretending that we don't have these habits? And how do we change our consciousness collectively? And how do men get involved to support women and also uh, break the tyrannies that keep them locked in very narrow definitions of always being in power, of always knowing what to say, to always know what to do? Right. Wow. Uh, Deepa, I have so many questions uh, that came from that. I, I mean, I think it's so interesting because men, 
you know, also have to be complicit in perpetuating this, you know, paradigm for it to continue. And I think that, you know, if you kind of look at culture, there's a lot to lose, um, you know, for men that, that want the change, but I think it's, um, I think that there's a lot of richness that's also lost in relationship when it feels so transactional. And because I think that, you know, that feels very spot on the, the idea that women have to disown themselves and disassociate. And, you know, I can even just say anecdotally in my, uh, in, in my group, um, I lived in New York, I lived in Chicago and San Francisco, but I, I generally have found that a lot of men would prefer to be with women that are, um, easygoing is not the right word. There's, it's even more of a, um, a, a catering to them rather than having a true exactly. equal partnership. Yeah. Cause it's easier, you know, in many exactly. ways it's easier. It's much easier. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same reason why parents raise us the way it is. Would you rather have a girl who's constantly asking questions and challenging you, or would you rather have a girl who just says yes and obeys you? Right. 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 So, so I think the, uh, I think to remember Yasmin where I think it's, it's, uh, actually as long as we get locked or as long as we see this interaction between men and women as a, uh, frame it as winning and losing. So I don't think men lose anything if they share or if they expand the definition of power, if they actually it releases them from always being in power and or pretending to be in power. And it releases them to feel their own fears and acknowledge their own fears rather than walling themselves off and pretending always to know. Mm, yeah. That's what I've learned from talking to men. Yeah. It's so, I think it's interesting because it, it's almost like they, there needs to be a balance. Like, cause I think what I've also noticed in culture is that sometimes people have over indexed for like then becoming even just indifferent, um, and not wanting to stand up for anything. So I think like that, that to me is, is interesting. Like how do we find the balance, um, in letting go, but yeah, so fascinating. Uh, yeah. Can I say one more thing? Of course, I think, yeah. I think one, I think the, the the easiest and I think the most important way of going forward is to think about uh, how mass how both men and women have masculine and feminine qualities. Right. Every human being has these. And what we've done with the cultural training across cultures, is that we've allocated masculine qualities to men and feminine qualities to women. So we've given men the power and women the love and the caring qualities. And for human beings to be happy, men have to open up to their own feminine self qualities and women have to own up to their own power and masculine qualities. And until until we change and we stop devaluing feminine qualities, we're not going to change. Mm. Yeah, it's powerful, powerful. 
Uh, Deepa, can you tell me a little bit more about why you've been so passionate about this topic and why have you decided that you want to spend your time on these on these subjects? Um, it was a gradual process. I've been doing work like this before, but not uh, in such a concentrated way. And so I've also learned learned a lot. I've come. To, I mean, I've worked on poverty reduction forever, right? Mm-hmm. For about thirty years, and we've uh, we have the basic messages about the importance of girls' education. It's absolutely important of women's education, of women earning incomes, of being reaching employment, etc. But the violence against women has not gone down, and gender equality has not been achieved anywhere in the world although the Icelandic countries may be better off, but they also have extreme, they have violence against women. In fact, Sweden has the same rates of violence against women as India, if you wow. look at it proportionately to them. So it's not the case that this is... I, I think if we can break one stereotype that this is a problem of the developing world and the Western world is sitting in a superior way, I think you'll do a great service. This is this is not the case. So if violence against women uh, is a global problem, and if you start breaking down and talking to men and women, if nobody is really happy below the surface, then something is wrong. We've missed something in our policy prescriptions and how we approach women's empowerment. And I think that's two things. That is that we really don't haven't understood that while men have dominated the world, we really don't understand their inner lives. And we've got to understand them. We've got to reach out to them as well as to women to change, change the world. And the second is we have a very limited understanding of power. And as long as we say, if we say that if men have to, men, if you even use the language of men have to give up power for women to be whole, we're not going to get anywhere. But if we loosen up our definitions and expand our definitions of what power or what male leadership looks like or should look like and what female leadership should look like, then I think we can see changes very rapidly rather than wait for two more centuries, which is what the World Economic Forum says will happen. Mm. Because we're actually sliding backwards in the U.S. as well as in India. We're sliding backwards. Yep. Wow. Yeah, I love I love that uh, expanding these uh, definitions of what it even means to have power. And for me, you know, I almost think like living in this polarized reality doesn't really help us get anywhere. I, I jokingly said I think it's it's best to live more in paradox right now than in polarity because at least you can hold multiple opinions. Um, and, and, and that also allows for other possibilities to come through. Cause I think like just having binary, you know, good and bad, uh, dark and light, the, those, those things are not going to be helpful for all of us to move forward. So. No, but you have to have a very secure self to hold the paradox and to live in the unknown. You have to have a lot of trust. And so, I think that's where your program talking about consciousness becomes really important. Exactly. Yeah. And I think so many people are just unconscious of even being unconscious. Um, yeah. And, <laughs> right. It's not a right. not something we teach in this world. 
I've also heard it described as like something you kind of stumble upon uh, either through crisis or curiosity. And for most people, it's crisis. So, yeah. 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 That's much easier. It's it's so much more fun when you're just curious rather than waiting for a crisis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and Deepa, you, you speak about uh, your uh, philosophy on kind of, you know, really trying to understand men because we as a society also don't understand them and, and we maybe stigmatize them for just being uh, interested in power. Um, we, I think we objectify men the same way men objectify women um, in, you know, in different ways. And so you started the podcast, what's a man, uh, which I thought, I think is so, so fascinating because these are topics like I just haven't heard um, in a, in a kind of global platform before. And some of the things you talk about are the connection between men and power and, you know, men and their bodies. And I mean, I'd love to just double click on a couple of these episodes, like the themes that came out of them. What is, maybe surprised you the most uh, from the launch of this? Uh, yes, I mean, that's an impossible question to answer <laughs> because it's been, everything is, I mean, each episode has been uh, journey and full of surprises. Um, I think the first one is that men were willing to talk and talk very openly and very honestly, just like women. And it comes back to, we do, we're not good listeners. We don't listen to each other. Yeah. So that to me is the biggest lesson is how can we become better listeners and more compassionate listeners so we listen deeply without jumping to defense or without uh, debate. Life is not a debate. I think the other, other thing that comes, I mean, there's so many things, uh, but I think the biggest one is that men are as stuck as women although we think they're not because they always act so powerful because that's the role and expectation given to them. Mm. So if we listen to men without judgment, a whole universe opens up. And so I think in doing these podcasts, all I do is create a zone of safety, of psychological safety. And so just like with women, men are opening up. And it's not to say that men are the heroes and men are the saints, but we've got to understand where they're coming from. We've got to understand their problems and we've got to hold them, men, accountable. So I think men are trapped in men and women, which is why we haven't moved as much as we could, is men are trapped in very narrow definitions of masculinity. So let me give you the... And this is, I think it's a wonderful exercise for everyone to do, men and women. So I end each episode um, with a question to start a conversation among your friends at homes, with your children, with your partners, with your colleagues. And by the way, just with the chup, I went through this whole argumentation of whether we should focus on whether we should use India's title. And I think I should have left it as explorations of masculinity because every issue is a universal issue. It, the form may vary a bit across cultures. So the thing that struck me in the definitions of masculinity, and please remember that these are men, all men and kids, seven-year-old kids, nine-year-old children, boys who believe in gender, who believe quite strongly in gender equality. And yet if you think, look at the analysis of what, what are the three words 
So let me ask you the question. Okay. What are the three words that come to your mind when you think of a man? If you're a man, what are the three words that come to your mind when you think of yourself as a man? And if you're a woman or whatever gender you identify with, what are the three words that come to your mind when you think of a man? You want me to answer that? <laughs> if you want. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to get in trouble if I answer that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't. You don't need to answer that. But there's a question I'm asking your listeners to mm. answer to themselves. Yeah. What we found is that men were saying over and over again, men and the kids were saying, it's to be strong, mm. to be strong, to be muscular, and to be dominant. And then when we asked, what are the three words that come to your mind when you think of a woman? Men, they were embarrassed, but they were honest enough to, to still say it. They talk about things like beauty, glowing skin, mother. Mm. And there is no, almost no overlap between the words used to describe a man and the words used to describe a woman. Except that when we ask, would you, uh, is it easier to be a girl or boy? Uh, the answer is always, it's easier to be a boy. And we ask, when we ask girls and boys, would you uh, rather be a boy or a girl? Girls say I'd rather be a boy, but a boy never says I'd rather be a girl. Wow. And on top of that, the characteristics that are associated with the women are devalued. So boys and men are being trained to be men by not being a woman, by not being like a woman. You know, don't laugh like a girl. Don't act like a girl. Don't cry like a girl. Wow. Don't walk like a girl. So if this is in our deep, this compartmentalization is so deep in our psyche, intellectually, we may want to treat women differently, or intellectually, a man may want to show his fears. But our deep psyche says, that's wrong. So my simple suggestion is, the only way to break this is to start having conversations and by just listening to each other without judgment, without making it wrong. And wonders, shifts start to happen. Wow. And, and Deepa, have you seen like, you know, people implementing this into their own communities? Um, you know, what's sort of been the reaction so far to the podcast and what's sort of emerged? We've uh, we've been very very fortunate that this even during the period of pandemic people are tuning in. We've had two hundred and fifty thousand people who've now listened to at least one episode. Wow! For which I'm deeply grateful, and it's because it's non-judgmental, and I talk in very simple terms and everyday behaviors so people can relate to it although it's informed by theory and a lot of thinking. So I think I've been able to distill down a lot of complex information to everyday behaviors and everyday thoughts, but pull them together in a way that people can see, see you know, the implications or the impact it's happening on their, on their lives. So after CHUP, as well as with the podcast, the question that uh, arises is how do we change? And I think the easiest way to change is through conversations. And so people have been, men have been writing, and uh, especially in conversations, 
about the, that they're starting to have conversation with friends and particularly and also within families uh, across generations because these are very simple questions that you can ask right and it's this process of change that it's this process of conversation that can then generate some light and empathy you know at the at the heart level for each other out of which come deeper questions Hmm. So I have one example I want to give you is I spoke to uh, a young man, uh, a young uh, 24-year-old university student getting his master's degrees. And he said when his parents, he sent the episode on sexuality, which is four, is episode four to his parents. And he said it's the first time that he and his parents could have a conversation on sexuality. Wow. So if we don't train our kids and we, if we're so embarrassed about human sexuality, which is part of human nature, then kids are learning about sexuality from pornography or being taught, by, taught about sex and sexuality by 13 and 14 and 15-year-old hormone-raging teenagers. Then, of course, you're going to have problems. So we have to overcome our own discomfort to be able to break this uh, cultural uh, transmission that's not serving boys or men or women. So just on the example of sexuality, but it's the same thing in every way. So it's not the case that as long as we have, again, come back to the winning and losing paradigm, it's not going to work. Violence is men commit violence not only against women, but against themselves. Suicide rates are high amongst men. And men more men kill each other than women killing men. So I come back to it's not an issue that men are living in paradise and women are living in hell. Men are living in private hells and women are, because I think men are living in, some men are living in private hell, they take it out on the weakest people around them. So it becomes women and children, but also people of other genders. Right. And Deepa, you know, it's interesting. I remember, um, and I might be, you know, paraphrasing here, but uh, Brene Brown, you know, spoke about this a little bit and she, uh, there's a, a gentleman in her audience who said, you know, I've taken, you know, I've listened to all the things you've said. I've tried to become more vulnerable with my wife. And then she completely shut me down. You know, she was like, I actually like, don't really want to hear your, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. your vulnerabilities. Thanks. And it's, I think it's so interesting because I think that, you know, even if the conversation opens up, like I, I, I still think like, how do we as women also see ourselves, you know, differently in this shift? Like, how do we break through our need to also be maybe like, you know, wanting to, you know, wanting to be in a, in a partnership where someone is uh, strong and secure and powerful? Um, yeah, I just think there's there's an interesting piece there for me because I think right, part of it, right. yeah. Right, exactly. I think it's. I think this is where the consciousness and self-awareness becomes important. It's to own our own vulnerability. So, when men, when a man, a partner starts crying, I've seen this happen over and over again in families, in my own family, 
that women get very distressed and can't hold it. Yeah. So how can we become stronger and feel our own fears when men become insecure or when become men become vulnerable rather than rushing to rescue or to close them down or to solve, make them feel better? So they need space, and this is coming out from every, every kind of research, that men need space to reclaim the parts of themselves that their parents shut down, mm. which is their emotional lives. And I used to think, you know, that all this business of men need to cry and men need to express their emotions was, you know, blah, 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 metro and nice, and a luxury good. It's not. It's out of this emotional shutting down is that we allow men the only expression, I'm exaggerating just a little bit, but I'm pretty serious. The expression that we allow men, that men are allowed, is anger. They're not allowed depression, sadness, frailty. And it's shutting this down that may, that leads, I think, leads to a lot of the um, Angle acting out into the environment rather than being holding in. Yeah. So the consequences of emotional numbness are huge in society and also for men. Uh, the other part of sort of being really strong and big and muscular is that uh, anything that doesn't fit into that image becomes classified as a weakness. And if it's classified as a weakness, it's a total no-no. So one of the most uh, negative consequences for men of having to be strong is that they're not allowed to ask for help. So I was surprised, even during these interviews that I've just done recently, and then I also had a team talking to a very competent, articulate 17, 25, 40-year-olds who believe in gender equality, who are very successful, who are very sure of themselves. And when we asked came to the question of how easy or difficult is it for you to ask for help, and that we actually had them rated on a 0 to 10-point scale, so many men gave themselves a 1 or 2. Wow. So this is why probing and going below the surface becomes important to just understand how trapped we are in our own behaviors. And it goes back to being a good man or a good woman or a good boy or a good girl. So boys get taught to be strong and independent, right? right? Not to depend on others and not to be weak. So they learn not to ask for help. It has very difficult, including, I think, depression and suicide is linked to not being able to reach out because you don't look good, you're vulnerable, you feel hopeless, you can't share your despair. Wow. So are you hopeful for the future then? You know, after collecting this information, I mean, and also Absolutely. Okay. I'm very hopeful. <laughs> okay. I, I'm very optimistic. So no, I'm not depressed at all by any of this. I feel hope. I feel hope because if you speak the truth in simple ways, people can deal with it. And so you asked me, I want to go back to the question you asked earlier, what next? 
is after CHUP, I started CHUP Circles, which is very developing very simple activities to give women a possibility to uh, create circles or small groups and, you know, have two, three questions and an activity, a creative activity to do uh, through which they could dig into themselves and reflect, etc. And I'm starting to do the same for men so having simple questions where you can talk to each other, talk to your guy friends, talk to other men, rather than only talking about sports or whatever else, business mm-hmm. or how successful men are. Men men still compete <laughs> with each other, right? right. So I, again, all this comes out in the episodes. And to see it all together is uh, moving, it's poignant. So, for example, just to repeat again, this uh, relationship, we we have a lot on relationship with mothers, right? In most culture, not this. This is different in India. You know, women are uh, mothers are put on a pedestal, but there's nothing on fathers. So we have an episode on fathers, and what do what do the men and boys yearn from for the fathers? I think more emotional connection. It's love. Mm. They just want to know that their fathers love them and they are craving a father's expression of love. Mm. Even when they know in abstract that their fathers love them, but that expression to feel loved is what they yearn for the most from fathers. Wow. Yeah, that's... It's so interesting. Yeah. And then from their perspective, they probably think that by showing too much love or too much emotion that it'll, you know, make them spoil the sun. Exactly. (laughs) This comes back. So my, I'm going to be writing about this, but it's the, uh, I think what's uh, in terms of gender equality or even think of feminism, what's been missing is love. And I talk about this in the first episode so we really need to be talking about power. It's a balance between power and love. The two must go together and not be outsourced to different individuals. Mm, yeah. You know, I, I, it's so interesting with the concept of love. I feel like there are no schools to teach people how to love. So most people learn mm-hmm. how to love from their families. And if they don't have a good exactly, model, yeah, then that gets repeated in relationship and it's... Exactly. Yeah. And so we all have to do a lot of learning, which is your why your word about being curious is a very powerful word. Because then we can learn about ourselves. And if we remove judgment and stop judging ourselves for not being able to love well or love this way or being stingy with our love, then you can shift. But as long as we shame ourselves, we're stuck. Or shame our partners, we're stuck. Mm, Yeah. Deepa, has the pandemic impacted your work and your perspective? A lot of the research for, I guess, What's a Man has come out of the pandemic, right? Or was it collected before? It it was before. It was, no, I'm oh. sorry. It's all been during the pandemic, during the first wave. Um, so I, I think in, in, we stopped the episodes. We stopped for a month because I couldn't cope with it, even though the episodes were ready, mostly ready. I could just, there's too much pain and, mm-hmm. you know, how can you 
I mean, you have to focus on getting people well and when people are sick. And uh, in India, there's been a catastrophic breakdown of the healthcare system. So people are dying. How can you do anything when people are dying? First things first. So we're now coming back to it and we'll be releasing the, um, we'll be doing the last few episodes. I think what the pandemic has, for me personally, it's been uh, the podcast actually emerged because of the pandemic. I first thought I'd be doing a book after the research, but as I started the research and I heard what men were saying, I felt the urgency to change the conversation is now. And as there's more and more stress, you've seen from the world over, there's been more domestic violence has increased, not decreased. More women have lost their jobs and not getting their jobs than before the pandemic. So it's all going backwards. And if you're going to stop this and shift this, it's so much better to come back in a slightly different way or with more consciousness and awareness. So I think men and women and children are all hurting. Uh, Where the pandemic, where the toll is really heavy in India, for example, there have been parents, children are being orphaned. So it's very complicated and difficult. And we can only come back if we keep our hearts open uh, in new ways while doing all the, obviously, the immediate help they're giving, the immediate help that people need. So I think just about every family is affected and you can't be the same after going through a crisis like this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My heart goes out to everyone in India. I mean, we've been watching, you know, from the U.S., so, um, and Deepa, like, what has surprised you the most uh, in on this journey? What do you think has kind of shocked you, surprised you? Um, I think that uh, that men feel when you keep digging, when you get to the bottom of it, that men feel alone. Hmm. There's a lot of loneliness amongst men beneath the bravado and the cover-up and the business, etc. And that there are, I, I would say that at least in every society, probably the proportions are different. But I think at least in India, one third of men are ready to change and want to change, but don't know how. Hmm. Because it's a really a new cultural invention, right? So if we can do it together, it's going to be much easier. And 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 not pretend to know the answers. We don't have the answers because it hasn't been done before. Um, and to and to add more lightness and play play in it, I think would be helpful. Now I'm only talking about the middle and upper classes, right? Where the money right. is not the immediate big issue. I think I think that's one. I think the second thing is that when you do work like this. Uh, you change. I found that when I was doing reading interviews of women and doing interviews with women over three years. And I I was surprised that men's interviews and listening to them and trying to figure out what's happening, etc. I think the same thing started happening to me, which surprised me, is that connecting with my own uh, inner masculine, the parts of me uh, in, in my masculine, the parts of me I'm 
powerful in the world, but the parts of me that still feel insecure. And how does that act up? And how can I heal that? How can I first own that and see that? And then the healing starts where you don't feel so, you don't feel insecure. So that's, that took me by surprise. Mm, yeah, that's powerful. Yeah, I and I love I love that uh, this the second uh, the part that you shared because I think when you talk to more people, you immediately gain this you know newer perspective that changes you in ways that you don't even maybe realize because it's it's like the small little pieces of impact that one day you look back and you're like, wow, you know, I I see this whole thing very differently so thank you for I think yeah and I think the other piece of me which I've worked on before is uh, deference to men which I thought I had conquered (laughs) 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 you know not automatic defiance but automatic deference I thought it's become much weaker but I realized when conflict there was a natural or my go-to was uh, deference, unless the issue was so so clear that you know I could, and it wasn't personal that I could speak up. But when it becomes personal, then I realized it was still there was still a bit of a challenge there that I had to wake up and really be inside myself and grounded to find my voice and speak up without attack and without fear. So speaking up about how I was perceiving it and what was happening rather than either attacking or keeping quiet and to collapse. Mm. So that was another piece that was interesting. Wow. So fascinating. And uh, Deepa, just last couple of questions. I wanted to, and we can edit this out if you don't want to answer it, but I wanted to to ask because you, your daughter is Priya Parker. Um, and I was wondering how has your relationship with your daughter maybe strengthened or changed after doing this type of work, uh, both with, you know, the, the work, you know, with the Ted talk and then also the what's a man podcast, like how have you, how has it changed? Um, or has it even changed since the pandemic? Um, and, and again, if you don't have to answer, if, if you don't want to, but just thought I'd ask. I think, yeah, I think um, I, I have an amazing relationship with Priya because as I was uh, telling you earlier, I've been on a, a journey of discovery of self, unearthing myself uh, for at least the last 30 years. And Priya has been a part of that. And she's also done some personal work. So I think doing this, uh, doing this last year and a half, I think two things have changed in me. I can talk about myself. Uh, first is getting even cleaner love and appreciation for her, mm-hmm. if that's possible, mm-hmm. because I thought it was pretty clean before. <laughs> but just real admiration for who she is as a separate human being, separate from me in her own glory, in her own son. I mean, I think it's gone a step even deeper as a result of my own healing or owning my own, as I said, insecurities. I think that's there. And I think second is just how to love just because, for no good reason. Hmm. So 
letting go of ex- even more levels of expectations of how she'd behave or what my relationship with her looks like or how often she'll call or blah, 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 blah. All these unspoken, and I have, you know, we speak often, etc. But irrespective of that, whether she remembers my birthday or whether she remembers <laughs> Mother's Day mm-hmm. or all these unspoken expectations that we have as human beings that give us pleasure, right? That's part of give and take of life and reciprocity. I think I've gone another level of uh, unconditional love, just loving her. Mm. Wow, that's so beautiful, Deepa. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Yeah, I think so much of culture and so many people, I think, have never really experienced true unconditional love. You know, what what it feels to just be accepted totally for who you are without you know, any condition, uh, you know, I think that's, yeah, it's powerful. Uh, so Deepa, what has inspired you the most, you know, on this path? Like, do you have any, uh, other people, books, resources, like, is it just come from your own internal world? What's really inspired you the most? I think on this particular journey, it's, uh, I think what's inspired me is a strong sense of, as long as I'm alive, part of my my gift or use my talents to help others with whatever talents in whatever way I can. And I think my particular gift is doing deep research, but presenting it in a way that's understandable. So putting assumptions aside and, you know, tracking, what does it mean to be a man? Because I don't need to do any of this. I could be sitting, I should be retired (laughs) and laying on a beach somewhere. (laughs) So I think that to me, this sort of inner, inner um, ethic or value that I got, particularly from my father, dad, is to use your gifts in whatever way. And and the second part of his message uh, is, you know, not to inflate with it. So how can we do it and how can we, whatever way we have, how can we use our talents uh, and share it with others? And I think as a woman, my challenge has been uh, always been sort of hiding, but how not to be over modest, but also not inflate. Mm-hmm. So I'm gifted and here are these gifts. That's one. I think in the process, because it's been tough, because you're learning something new, you're going through your own fears through a terrible pandemic the world has never seen, you feel vulnerable. I think coming back to creativity is how can we, uh, and uh, what's her name, Gilbert, Yeah. what's her first name? Elizabeth, yeah. Elizabeth Gilbert's book, I reread twice. And it's fun, it's light, and it's also profound that we're all creative beings. And whether it's creating a podcast or doing research or writing poetry or art or cooking, these are all creative processes. And how can you bring the joy back and do it despite dwindling confidence or not getting any appreciation. I had no idea that the podcast would be listened by, I I was hoping, you know, like 500 people or a thousand people would listen to it. So you can't be motivated by the end result. Mm. You just do it, do the best you can. Uh, and with a strong, strong commitment that you, it'll make a difference to people and then you let it go. 
So how to use your gifts in the best way you can, despite all the problems surrounding you. So not to be overcome by the world collapsing around you and or to feel it, to feel your pain, to feel your grief and then rise up and say, okay, what do I need to do now? So powerful, Deepa. I really needed to hear that myself. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And especially the part about just letting it go, you know, wanting something to turn out a certain way or to, you know, have your creativity move in a certain direction. I think just the process itself is maybe the most healing part and the best part of it, the process. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then not to, and we keep coming back. If you've done your best, that's, that's good enough. And also at the end of the day and not try, not aiming for perfection because that just becomes such a trap. Yeah. So even editing these podcasts, I had to say, okay, stop. Because otherwise I could fiddle endlessly <laughs> with the, <laughs> which I did. So then I had to set deadlines. Okay, done and send it off. Because then you can't fiddle with it anymore. It's the same thing with any creative process. You've got to let go. Yeah. And have the satisfaction. It's wonderful that lots of people listen to it. But I've done my piece. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can empathize with that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so Deepa, what's like your last kind of main takeaway? What do you want to tell people? And I feel like you had many, many takeaways this whole conversation, but if you want to kind of, you know, impart one last piece of advice or just something that you want to give to, to our audience, what do you want to tell them? That each one of you is an amazing human being. You're already whole. And you're alive because you're meant to be alive. So now take yourself on and decide and explore how you want to show up in the world, mm. in your world. I love that. I love that. Oh, Deepa, thank you so much. And where can people find you? Of course, you've got the podcast, What's a Man, uh, which you can find on Apple and I bet Spotify. But can you tell us where where's the best place for people to find you? You can also find it on our website, which is called what's a man, what's a man dot com, all in one word, uh, www.whatsaman.com. And you can go to my website, which is deepanarayan, uh, dot com. And on any podcast platform, just type in my name or what's a man and you can find it. And please subscribe. And if anything touches you, write to us. Love to hear from you. Amazing. And well, spread the word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we will definitely include that all in the show notes and uh, how people can find you as well. But yeah, thank you so, so much, Deepa, for all the work that you're doing in this world and also for your time today. It's just such a pleasure to connect with you. My pleasure, Yasmin. And thank you for doing this podcast. I think it's so important. Thank you. Thank you. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about the bad habits that women must unlearn with Deepa Narayan. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one -on -one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Thanks again.